This week on Don't Panic, we bring you interviews from two authors recently added to the cybersecurity canon, Rich Bayich and Brian Krebs. Stay tuned. Welcome, everybody, to Don't Panic, the podcast from Palo Alto Network's Threat Intelligence Team, Unit 42, published every month at fuelusergroup.com. We have a special edition of the podcast this month because in March we had our annual Ignite User Conference in Las Vegas. It was a great event. We had a few thousand Palo Alto users all in one place. They were all learning from each other and learning from outside experts. But during the event, we actually inducted four new authors into what we call our cybersecurity canon. If you haven't heard of the canon yet, this is really Rick's brainchild. Uh, he's a huge book nerd, and a few years ago he started building this list of must-read books that everyone in our profession, the profession of cybersecurity, uh, should should read or should put in the list of things they should read. And the list contains fiction and nonfiction. And every year we're adding a few new books to the list, which are chosen by Rick and his committee as they go through a process throughout the year. We really think all these are books that all of you who are listening should probably be reading as well. During the conference, Rick actually interviewed two of the authors whose books were inducted in the canon. So for this edition of podcast, rather than get Rick on the phone and the two of us talk about um, who was inducted and what their books actually look like, I figured I'd play you some excerpts from those interviews. So first up, we're going to start with Brian Krebs of KrebsOnSecurity.com. He was inducted this year for his new book, Spam Nation. So anyone who follows security blogs is certainly familiar with Brian's work, and you probably know that he's done some of the greatest investigative reporting into cybercrime of all time. He's still actively reporting at Krebs on Security, and he just does some great work. In fact... He's gone so far in his investigation that he's really ticked off a whole bunch of the bad guys who are writing banking Trojan and other pieces of malware. Um, if, you've, if you're familiar with the Citadel malware, uh, one of the additions of it actually came with a string built into the code. Uh, he, this guy hated Brian so much that he added the string that says, Coded by Brian Krebs for personal use only, I love my job and wife. And you've you got to know, as an investigative reporter, you're doing a great job when the bad guys start including thinly veiled threats toward you in the source code of their banking Trojans. So let's go ahead and get started. Here we're starting with Rick asking Brian about why the criminals that he's profiled in Spam Nation have been so effective. Talk about why they are so good at what they do and how efficient they are. Um, you know, I think it's about adding, uh, setting up, the, the guys that I profiled in the book uh, were, between the two of them, responsible for uh, setting up the systems that employed uh, probably most of the uh, virus writers and, and big-time spammers that we've seen over the last decade. And I think between the two of them, probably responsible for 75% of spam yeah, <laughs> that you are. Those two guys. You yeah. met him, right? You just took him out. We did to solve that problem. I'm, yeah, I met <laughs> I met Pavel. I did not meet Igor, but I spent a lot of time talking to these guys on the phone. Um, and I would guess I would describe them as force multipliers, mm -hmm. essentially. So they um, they make they make it easy for uh, they make it easy to commoditize uh, cybercrime. There's only a small number of people in the Eastern Europe block, let's say, who's making a lot of money at this. The rest of these guys are just, it's just a job to them, right? Yeah, it, that was the, the really surprising and sort of shocking thing that I found in the research. So um, these guys both paid hackers to break into each other's networks and steal <laughs> years worth of, of records, uh, chat records, emails, uh, banking records of all their shell companies and stuff. 
Um, so I got a very, very granular look at these cybercrime operations, and uh, they employed thousands of people over a four or five year period. The vast majority of those guys made a few hundred bucks. Um, but when you, th and that's probably the most frustrating thing about cybercrime in general, is that most of these guys don't make that much money, and yet they cause all kinds of trouble, and they force the rest of the world to have this trillion-dollar industry, you know, to to, to help uh, block the crap. Well, I think that's the I think that's the myth that you kind of busted there. I mean, I think most of us knew this, but I don't think the rest of the world knows yeah. it. That you know, these guys are just trying to make a living, and the situation is such in those countries that it's easier they can do this and, yeah. and not be put in prison. It's 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 interesting. Um, it, one of the things that I found in my research was these, the guys that uh, were doing spamming almost universally got started uh, pimping pornography of one kind mm -hmm. or another. And I think it is sort of that, uh, uh, that um, piling on uh, thing where, you know, one guy says, oh, that guy's making money doing cybercrime. I can do that, you know. Um, same thing with, uh, with porn. Uh, they decided, oh, you know, this is, I'm going to make lots of money, and they get into it, and then they find that 10,000 other guys had the same idea at the same time, and how are they going to differentiate themselves? And it's not easy, okay? It, 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 it's, it's electronic cyber. It must be I'm in my basement making millions of dollars. It's not easy to make and, money. And it's not, and, 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 but you can see how these guys would sort of slide from that to forcing people to look at their content or finding creative ways to drive traffic. and. And in the end, uh, that is what the spam uh, problem is all about, is driving traffic to these sites. And, and uh, in fact, um, the, the spammers themselves uh, often called each other uh, traffers instead of spammers. Really? Yeah. And why, why do that? What's that? What is the significance? Well, I mean, if, if, if you're in the spam business, it's all about numbers. Mm. So you're only going to get uh, about 1% of the people to actually click through, and then you have a very small percentage of those that you would capture as mm -hmm. customers. Um, so you need to send out billions of spams in order to get a very small number of responses. So uh, it's all about numbers, and it's all about driving those eyeballs. Well, I don't think it's that big of a shot that you move from pornography to, let's say, pharmaceutical spam. I, you know, it doesn't seem that far away from each no. other, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the question I have is the organization behind the business. I find it fascinating that these guys would have, you know, world-class uh, help desk centers, right? Yeah. And, and can you talk about that? Sure, yeah. The, the, um, the crux of everything, um, uh, the things I just mentioned, so, um, whether you're selling pornography or uh, you know male enhancement pills or whatever, um, you're 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 basically going to be embracing a thing the Russians call the partnerka, which is really just means partnership. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of the partnership is uh, the spammers or the traffers or whoever, all they have to do is figure out how to get eyeballs to these sites. Mm -hmm. That's their one job. Uh, the people running the affiliate program that that employs them. Uh, do so on a commission basis, so they only pay out when somebody gets them a sale. And on top of that, um, they handle everything about the back office. So mm -hmm. they handle the the procurement, the customer service, uh, the shipping, and 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 credit card issues and things like that. So um, they make it very easy for these guys to, uh, you know, to, to to. Which I find is fascinating, right? Because all that you just said is just business. Yeah. 
the only thing that makes it illegal is that they're doing, you know, farm or whatever else they're doing. Right, so you asked about customer service side of things. Yeah. Uh, that was the other thing that was very surprising. So when I went into this, uh, to, to, the, uh, to, to writing this book and researching it, I had a lot of misconceptions about the, the spam industry. Yeah. I didn't know it at the time. But, you know, I sort of thought along the lines of a lot of people, which was, who are these idiots buying from spam? And why would they, you know, aren't these guys just going to steal their credit card and da-da-da? Well, you totally you blew my mind, right, on that, because, you know, we, we're security people. We assume that the, the user is an idiot. The guy that clicked is the, he's just really dumb, and right. that's the guy getting, but that's not the way it was. And no, and in fact, uh, the, the partnership set it up so that the, the spammers never got to see the credit card data uh, for that very reason, because they knew that if that happened, uh, uh, they would start seeing a high number of chargebacks, which would cost them a lot of money. Um, but uh, they cared very much about customer service and sure. they employed teams of people uh, whose job it was to make sure that uh, people got what they ordered and were happy with it. And at the end of the day, again, it was to prevent any sort of chargebacks or disputes with the card association. Because it's an efficient business that way, right? Right. So you did this crazy thing. You went over to Russia and met one of these guys, right? So I did. Tell me how, how scary that was. Well, it, it, was, um, it was unnerving because you know, I got a lot of advice from my security friends and you know people in law enforcement, and they, and I and I ended up having to uh, ignore that advice for a variety mm -hmm. of reasons. Not long after I got there, um, but I, I I mainly went there because I didn't I didn't think that the guy that I wanted to interview was going to be, you know, out of prison for very long. I mean, I thought he was he was going to get arrested, and it turns out he was. He did get arrested. Uh, so you were right for three months after <laughs> I left. Yeah, and and. Uh, yeah, th that was uh, that was a little scary. I mean, it was it was it was a it was a last minute invitation, um, and I accepted it without really thinking thinking it through too much. Uh, I think part of that was like if I thought it about it too much, I'd probably start freaking out. Uh, but the guy I went to interview, I didn't tell him I was coming, so I just uh, I showed up, and within a few hours of, of landing in the hotel, uh, I called him up, and he he said. Uh, at this point, we had been talking every day via phone, sometimes for hours on end, and he would just call me and start telling me, you know, these crazy stories, uh, some of which were true, and I'm sure some of which were, you know, em embellished. But uh, uh, at this point, we were talking every day via Skype, and I called him, and I said, uh, hey, man, how you doing? He goes, hey, it's, it's 7 a.m. where you are. Who died? And I'm like, no, I'm in your time zone. He's like, what? You know, and so he's like, yeah, I'll send a, I'll send a limo and a driver, and you know, and that was probably the stupidest thing I've ever done. But, <laughs> but journalistic integrity, we'll just call it that. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it wasn't everything I hoped for because he, he had promised me if, if I showed up in person, uh, and re really made an effort to understand what, how things work in Russia that uh, he would tell me the truth about things. And it didn't quite work. He did, yeah. <laughs> no, he decided he didn't want to do that. So, so I'd be remiss if I didn't mention uh, that we, the reason we brought you out here, okay, is that you've come to receive uh, your award to be inducted into the cybersecurity canon. Yes, thank Th you. This thing that says these are a list of books that all of us should have read by now. And I absolutely, when I read your book, I absolutely knew it was one of the ones that we had to have. Because you break a bunch of myths and that we should all know about. So uh, congratulations for getting your award. Thank you. Um, I want to ask you one more question away from the book. Sure. Okay. You've, you have plowed new territory on how to do cybersecurity journalism. 
and was probably the first guy that did this, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it's possible. A lot of journalists in, in working for newspapers, and you decided to go your own way and create your own space. Mm -hmm. and I'm just wondering, it's been, what, how long has it been since you did that? Uh, a little over five years. So how's it, how's it going? I mean, is, is it uh, everything it's, you thought it'd be or no, different? It's, it's, it's far exceeded my expectations. Uh, you know, with the, the, I worked for the dot-com at WashingtonPost.com, mm -hmm. uh, and then in 2009 they merged that with the Dead Tree Edition, and they got rid of my job, and I didn't really know w what else I could do other than what I was doing, and I didn't want to walk away from you know, all these sources and, mm -hmm. and access that I'd gotten. So I said, well, I'll just keep doing it on my own. And that was the best decision I ever made because, uh, um, again, you know, I, I, try to, I try to focus on the problem from the perspective of the guys engaged in this activity, uh, both from the defenders and the attackers' side. Um, and there is just so much material out there yeah. that it's, it, it, and, and it's changing so quickly um, that I think people really have a have a hunger for, um, you know, more more clue about what's going on, and because I think at a meta level, more people are coming to uh, understand how much we have riding on all this. But what I like about it though is your model is different than the other models, right? You're world class journalist uh, doing it on your own, and people are trying to emulate you, but you really kind of set the pace for everybody. Well, thanks for saying that. Uh, I, I'm fortunate because. Uh, I don't have to chase other people's stories. Yeah, uh, that's true. And 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 a great, <laughs> a, a huge percentage of uh, journalism is chasing other people's stories, um, and so I just sort of opted out of that uh, five years ago, and uh, I, it's given me the opportunity to to really focus on uh, producing content that you can't find anywhere else. All right, I hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Brian Krebs, but now it's time to change gears to Rick's interview with Rich Bayich. Rich is the Chief Information Security Officer of Wells Fargo, and he wrote his book, Winning as a CISO, nearly a decade ago, when Chief Information Security Officers were far less common than they are now. Uh, Rick and Rich actually have pretty similar backgrounds, but Rick started this interview asking Rich, uh, why did he write this book? How does a guy um, who's a, a CISO of a, of a major financial institution decide to write a book about winning as a CISO? I want to just say your book, okay? I, I ran into it late. You published it in 2005, right? Something like that, right? And I didn't find it till like last year. Right? And I was astounded how forward thinking that whole, your whole thought process on as how where's the CSO work and how do you organize for a commercial organization? And I'm just wondering how you managed to get that published or, or and how it didn't destroy your career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's uh, somewhat, somewhat of a funny story. So, you know, I took over as the chief information security officer and um, the Information Security Executive Alliance was this organization and they were starting this uh, CISO of the year mm. in Georgia. So, um, you know, I got, I got nominated to be the executive of the year and I ended up winning. Well, you know, kiddingly, I said, well, what am I supposed to do with this? Is it kind of like, am I supposed to be like, you know, Miss America, go across the country talking about security? Because I didn't expect to win. And they said, well, no, you should write a book. And um, I jokingly said, oh, yeah, I could do that. And um, I was just finishing up my MBA, and one of the professors used a storybook to help get across the concepts. So I said, okay, well, um, all right, I'll write a book on what I'm doing as a CISO and write it like a story. 
because um, I thought that was how I was able to comprehend some of these complex uh, topics. So that was kind of the inspiration to sit down and write uh, Winning as a CISO. So let's be clear about what the controversial topic is because I think the industry is now evolving to what you said in your book. We're not there yet, but it's moving in that direction, I believe. Your job as CSO of Wells Fargo, you've kind of parlayed that into that organization. I have a similar uh, arrangement here at Palo Alto where the CSO works for the senior executives of the team, right? And up to 2000, when did you publish it again? 2005, yeah. right? Uh, mostly CISOs have been working for the IT organization. So your idea that they should work uh, in parallel or in, in tandem with a kind of a tension between the two groups, not an argument, but a tension, uh, it's kind of revolutionary, and uh, I'd like to know how you how you came up with all that. Well, well, sure. So, you know, first off, the role of the CISO, oftentimes, you got to look at the organizational culture, right? Every organization is designed in a particular fashion, and and where the reporting structure is is isn't as important as um, what's the authority that the mm -hmm. CISO has. How does the budget work? Um, uh, how much um, interaction they get with the appropriate people? Um, every organization has different boards of directors. Some have boards of directors, some have risk committees, some have audit committees, some have cyber committees, mm -hmm. very different things. So um, when, you're, when you're looking at where the CISO should rest, you want to make sure that the CISO has the appropriate authority and budget. A great example is, is when you look at um, a, a typical CIO or CTO, they're incentivized to get the longest life out of their IT infrastructure equipment, mm -hmm. um, which, which, is, which is a good incentive. Which they should do, yeah. Um, however, if some of that IT infrastructure is actually security technologies, um, you want to make sure that those security technologies aren't approaching end of life, aren't in situations where you know, maybe unpublished vulnerabilities aren't, aren't being necessarily uh, noticed, nor are fixes being put in by the vendors. So having that scope is important. And then when you look at it even further, you say, okay, well, um, who's providing credible challenge to the IT infrastructure? Uh, you know, when you look at what a, a chief information security officer does, let's use just simple patching. Right? Uh, the security officer and the security team are not patching the servers. Right. You know, primarily, it's the IT infrastructure. Sure. Well, they may believe they're patching, and their intent may be the patching, but what if they fail to reboot the server? What if they fall, fall too far behind those patchings and then the patchings become greater and the infrastructure becomes less strengthened? So part of the CISO's job is to provide assurance. So that second line of credible defense is important. And the, uh, I'll, I'll, the regulators recently came out with some guidance around that and specifically the OCC about a first and second line. And um, the role of information security is one that it's, it's providing some first line support as it fights the company, but it's also providing that second line assurance, incredible challenge and risk appetite that's good for any, any organization. And truly that's what a good information security organization does. In the book I talk about uh, you have a policy, then you want to have standards that can be followed, and then you want to actually design your own controls, mm. and then you want to test them. And then occasionally also you want audit, audit your best friend. Sure. They're also checking your controls just to make sure everybody's doing everything. So when you think about that kind of concept, you know, reporting into maybe the risk organization or the chief operational risk officer or the chief admin officer, or even the CEO sometimes makes sense. The, uh, the CIO is uh, executive VP for the company. Surely he can keep two thoughts in his brain at the same time, that he needs to innovate for the company and keep it secure, and why wouldn't it all fall into the same technology person? That's scenario one. Scenario two is that there, what you were describing in your book is that there should be a tension 
that the CIO should be innovative and take the company forward with automation and keeping the company growing. And then the security guy can help him do the right thing the right way, not tell him no, but say, this would be a better way and you, you reduce your risk structure. Uh, any, how, is it, how do you see the industry moving in that direction? Well, I mean, you nailed it. You do not want your CIO um, stopping enabling the business. Now, we got to integrate security in that, mm -hmm. but just like any other line of business, whether that be technology or just you know, um, um, production, right? You want them taking risks, because they need to take risks, of course, we're talking about acceptable risks, sure. to push the business, to push the envelope, to push innovation. Security's job is not to um, uh, prevent innovation from occurring, it's supposed to be enablement. And enablement of that oftentimes is, is, is ensuring the appropriate controls and risks are, are even understood right. and accepted. Because you know we are practicing the art of risk management every day in information security. Every firewall rule you approve, you are accepting risk. Right? Every vulnerability that you choose not to remediate at that particular time, you're accepting risk. And all of those things have real processes behind them of why you can't do that. If you do um, reconcile that vulnerability, well, it's going to stop this business process. Well, it's a low-risk vulnerability, so maybe I'm going to accept that for the time being. So, I, you know, it's important to keep that into concept. And remember, we're really practicing enabling an art of risk management, and risk management's job is to enable. So that credible challenge needs to be there. And when you get that relationship working well, you accelerate innovation, but you accelerate it in a secure fashion. I want to change gears away from the book and just talk about cybersecurity, if you don't mind, right? You're the CSO of Wells Fargo, um, and you've been in the business for a long time. What is the thing that you're worried about most at Wells Fargo? Well, I mean, um, specifically from an industry standpoint, one of my biggest concerns is our dependency on the public internet. Hmm. Um, when you think about any company today, we depend on the public internet to um, deliver services to our customers, um, to enable our supply chain, to communicate, to, to do everything. There's tremendous resiliency, I should say, reliability on it, and we need a resilient infrastructure to support that. And um, I'm very fearful that our, our public internet can either one, be degraded through various types of sure. um, techniques and rerouting uh, without us ever knowing. Two, it could be degraded from distributed denial of service attacks as we've seen in the past. Or three, you know, it's always the potential for, um, I'm not a big cyber warfare type of fan, but I'll say cyber diplomacy, you know, where a nation state, you know, could um, um, somehow impact the United States in a critical infrastructure which we all depend upon regardless of our industry and suddenly our ability to um, uh, provide services to our customers are degraded and we need to begin thinking about you know potential alternate methods for doing that so that's that's one big issue that you know you from a, my standpoint you're advocating a solution there or yeah well, I mean, you know, there's different ways of viewing that, right? There's alternate, you know, mechanisms. I mean, in, in the end, you know, we're talking about, um, uh, you know, uh, the use of the electromagnetic spectrum and how you can manipulate it. So, you know, it may, it may not be something that's there today, but I, I think in the future we've got to recognize the fact that so much dependency on in the Internet is being there. It's kind of like our own power, right? If we didn't have power, what would we do? Yeah. And how would we get things done? So um, plenty of apocalyptic books have been written just on that very subject. Well, well, sure, <laughs> but but you know, if you if you you know, you, you have to put it into perspective, right? Okay. <laughs> yes. Is there a potential for a high altitude, you know, bomb blast that could you know take out our every computer chip in the in the country type of thing? Um, but when you look at the internet, look at some BGP routing issues that have happened. Look at distributed denial of service. So we've had some symptoms 
associated with it. And, and understanding that that degradation can be totally by accident, um, but your, your customers want to ensure they can continue doing business with you. Well, it's absolutely true that uh, the commercial world owns the internet, all right? So, uh, and even if there is a crisis of a magnet, and we haven't even defined what that level is, but let's say there's some crisis where the government needs to take charge, take charge of the internet. There's no mechanism for that now. Okay, and so, and, and w whether or not companies would be willing to take orders from the government in terms of a cyber crisis, even if you could define what that crisis level was, that's a, that's a huge debate that has not even begun to happen yet, I think. Well, you know, and look at, look at how we handle communications, yeah. right? So communications were there well before the internet was, mm -hmm. right? But what is the internet? It's a form of communication, right? We started off with, um, you know, dits and dashes and Morse code, right? You know, to now we've got, you know, cellular towers and the whole bit. Well, obviously we have a communication plan in our country if, um, you know, if the communication comes down, there's get cards of different mm -hmm. ways that, that choose priority. What's the priority for the internet? Yeah. Who has one? Who, you know, who, can, who can process and who can't? The employees at Verizon and AT&T, I think, can. That's about it. <laughs> yeah. All right, I hope you all enjoyed listening to Rick and Rich give you their thoughts on the role of the CSO and their organizations, as well as just generally the, the future of cybersecurity. With that, we'll wrap up this edition of Don't Panic. Join us here again next month for our next topic. If there's something you'd like to hear us discuss, uh, please feel free to do so by uh, joining us on fuelusergroup.org. Um, go ahead and leave us a comment. Let us know what you're thinking. As always, so long, and thanks for all the fish. Bye.